Good morning. Wow. All right. Let's try that again. <laughs> Good morning. All right. We are. You are still there. That's great. Um, I was going to start off with a with a war eagle. You can't do that. Uh, I was going to start off with a roll. No, we would never say that here. But anyway, um, hey, our Braves are world champs. We'll take with that. Does that work? That'll work. Um, I'm so glad that you're here today. We are uh, coming to the close of a series that uh, we've been doing for a couple of months here called uh, You've Got Questions, uh, He's the Answer. And uh, in that series, we've talked about heaven and hell. We've talked about absolute truth. Brother Dix talked about marriage. We've talked about suffering, the Holy Spirit. We've talked about suicide, and we've talked about the unforgivable sin. If, you, if you've missed any part of that, you can go back to uh, our website, parkwayauburn.org, and uh, you can find those messages there. I would highly encourage you to go back, listen to those messages, some great questions asked, but even better answers given that we find that, that our answer truly is found in the one who uh, is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're going to continue to press into that this morning, asking the question about counterculture Christianity. And uh, when, when I was kind of assigned this uh, message this morning, talk about counterculture Christianity, um, I was thinking, you know, that's... There's a bunch of messages wrapped up in that topic alone and a lot of questions in that topic alone. But uh, today you're going to get two messages. And you may think, well, okay, is it going to take twice the amount of time? Maybe, but uh, maybe not. Uh, but we're going to give you two messages today because I just feel like we, we need to address two different things when it comes to counterculture Christianity. So the first one we're going to be talking about today is counterculture Christianity. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along today, um, I'll, we have several passages of scriptures we're going to read today. Uh, the first one is found in John chapter 17. And uh, in this passage of scripture is a prayer that Jesus is praying before uh, his betrayal, before all the trials and the crucifixion and the resurrection. He is praying and asking God to do a work, not only in him, but also in, the, in his disciples. He also prays a prayer in there for you. I would encourage you to go back and read that that incredible prayer that uh, Jesus prays there. But we're going to look at, at John chapter 17. And we're going to just look at two verses in the prayer. Because I believe it kind of gives us a, a launching point to talk about counterculture Christianity. And it's uh, John chapter 17. We're going to read verses 11 and then verse number 16. John 17, 11 says this. I am no longer... In the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you've given me, so that they may be one as we are one. And then skip down to verse 16. He says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I believe in this prayer that Jesus kind of gives us a picture of what counterculture Christianity looks like. That he says, Father, I'm praying right now for, for these guys that have been with me these past three years. And I'm not in the world soon. I will not be in the world at all. But they are in the world. But at the same time, they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. And so we want to kind of break that down a little bit today. They are in the world. And, and so he's basically he's praying, Father, I'm, I'm about to leave these guys here in this place. And understand that this place is not how God designed it to be. Because God's intent when he created this, this world was to have a place where, where he could have 
perfect relationship. Perfect relationship, just as was displayed between the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has perfect relationship. He desired to have perfect relationship with his creation. And so he breathed his breath into man. And there you see that they had this perfect relationship, man and God. And it is an incredible thing to think that the God that spoke light into existence desired to have a relationship with his creation. And then he saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone, so he created a woman. And not only are we to be in a relationship with a perfect God and have a relationship there, but we're also created for relationships with others. That we were never meant to do life alone. God is always with us. God is our heavenly father. God is perfect creator. And we were built and made and designed to have a relationship with him. But he also not able to do life alone because he also designed us to have perfect relationship with one another, to help one another, to submit to one another, to encourage one another. And that's how God designed this world. And he says, Father, I need you to know that I'm no longer in this world, but they're in the world. And this world has fallen. You know the rest of the story from Genesis that, that Adam and Eve came to the conclusion that God could not be trusted that God may have been holding something back, that Satan told them that, that they could be like God. And because they believed the lie, sin is introduced into creation. And because of sin, just as God said, death is introduced. And I love what one, one pastor said that many people read that passage of Scripture and said, well, they didn't die. Absolutely they did because at the moment that they sinned, no, they did not experience a physical death. They experienced being cut off from the source of life. And Jesus is praying. They're in this world. And in this world, they're still going to have family. And they're still going to experience failure. They're going to they're have relationships and they're going to experience sin. They're going to have um, work and they'll still experience grief and guilt and fear. They'll have friends. They'll experience love and compassion. But there's still going to be struggles and temptation and pain. And all these things are a part of being in the world. And so Jesus says, hey, as they're in the world, Father, protect them. Father, walk with them. Father, as we're one, oh, my prayer is that they would be one in the world. But even as I'm leaving them in the world, they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. And if we hear those words as believers and we're not of the world, then here's a great English question. What are we of? If we're not of the world, what are we of? And I believe that Paul answers that question for us in the book of Colossians. If you want to turn there quickly, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 Paul wrote this, uh, this letter to a, to a new church, one of his uh, church plants on his missionary journeys that have just begun, and he's trying to encourage them. And I believe he talks about, hey, you're in a world, but you're not of the world any longer because of something that's happened inside of you. And I believe that's what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about his disciples being in the world, but no longer of the world. In Colossians chapter 1, verse number 13, Paul wrote this. He says that he, God... He, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. God has rescued us 
from a fallen and broken world. God has rescued us from sin and death and the grave. God has rescued us from the dominion of the darkness. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. What does it look like to be in the world but not of the world? It means that you have put your full faith and your full trust and your full belief that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and that he accomplished everything the Bible, the gospel messages tell us that he accomplished on the cross, in the grave, and by rising again on the third day. And when you put your faith in that, you can be in the world and on mission, but not of the world because you have been transferred into another kingdom. You've been moved into another kingdom. And it shouldn't be any surprise about talking about a new kingdom. Because if you can kind of listen in to a conversation that Jesus had with Pilate during the trials, during the betrayal, during all the things that was going on leading up to his crucifixion, hear what Jesus said as they had this conversation. Just kind of listen in. You're in the room. Pilate is asking questions of Jesus in verse 33 of John chapter 18. Pilate says, he went back to the headquarters and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? And Pilate responds, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, the chief priest, handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate asked, you are a king then? Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. I was born for this. I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens To my voice. Jesus says that you have been transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son who loves. That's what Paul wrote. Jesus says, hey, yes, there is a kingdom and I am the king, but my kingdom is not of this world. If we have put our faith and trust and belief in Jesus Christ, then we are of his kingdom. If we're not of the world, we are of his kingdom. In his kingdom, God loves us. And he sent Jesus to be, our, to be the Savior of the world. For whoever believes in him has eternal life. Jesus loves us and gave his life for your sin and for mine. Holy Spirit loves us. And we know this because Holy Spirit is 100% God. And if God loves us and if Jesus loves us, guess what? Holy Spirit loves us as well. And he lives in every believer to convict you, to guide you, to pray for you, to empower you, and to change you from the inside out. And because that's true about you, now you're not just an individual who's in the world but not of the world. You've been connected to the body of Christ as a believer. And as the body of Christ, you're a part of the church. And you have one kingdom objective. It is to bring glory to God by making disciples. That is our one kingdom objective. Father, I'm not in the world, but they're in the world. I'm not of the world, and they're not of the world. Protect them. 
Keep them on mission. So in counterculture Christianity, there's two kingdoms. The first kingdom we'll call the kingdom of self. And in the, in the kingdom of self, uh, you get uh, different encouragements and different advice and different beliefs about how life should be lived. And maybe you've heard some of these, maybe you've shared some of these with other people, or maybe you've heard other people tell these things to you. In, in the kingdom of self, you hear people say, hey, you just do you. I mean, you, you just do what you want. You choose your way, you just do it. You just follow your heart as much as you can. You do you your way. Or maybe you hear this one, and again, maybe I've even said these things. But you hear, oh, you are enough. Oh, yeah, you, you don't need anything else. You're enough. You can just you can stand firm in, in who you are. You are enough. You have enough truth in you to just decide which way to go, and you, you're just enough. In the kingdom of self, you also hear maybe the encouragement, and I know I've said this one, and if you're a parent, you've probably said it too, with great intentions. But in the kingdom of self, we'll tell people, hey, you know what? You can be anything you want. Oh, yeah, you can. That sounds like great advice. You, you just be anything you want to be. You live your life. You do you your way. You, you, you are enough, and you just follow that truth. So in the kingdom of self, we live our lives, we live your way, your way, by your truth, and you do your life. And that's what the kingdom of self looks like. There's another kingdom, though. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. In the other kingdom, there's another king, and he's the son. It's the kingdom of the son. In the kingdom of the son, it's full with surrender. It's not about you doing you, and it's not about you being whatever you want to be, and it's not about thinking about, am I enough? You know you are not. It's not your way. It's not your truth. It's not your life. You know that Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And so in this kingdom, he's the way, he's the truth, and he is the life. In the kingdom of self... You're born, and you live, and you die, and you live forever separated from your heavenly Father, if this is where you remain. That's where this kingdom ends up. If you're in the kingdom of the Son, you, you're born, you live, you die, and you live forever, separ- uh, live forever, You sleep only to wake up in the presence of Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. The kingdom of the Son. Kingdom of self, heads up. You already know this. You are a lousy king. You are. If you're the only one that's leading your life, oh, that's a hard road to follow. You're a lousy king, but... In the kingdom of the Son, you are saved. You are reconciled with God. You're forgiven. You're a new creation. You're born again. You're a child of God. You're adopted. You're an heir. You're a co-heir with Christ. You're a son and daughter of God. You're a saint. You are blessed. You are gifted. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are loved, victorious. A place is being prepared for you, and you are serving the living King of Kings. 
in the kingdom of the Son. And so you have to come to a place and you have to examine your heart and you have to examine your life and you have to decide, who will I allow to sit on the throne of my heart today? Will I continue to be the king of my life and do things my way, live by my truth, and live my life? Or has there been a part and been a time in my life where I have surrendered my life to the Son and He sits on the throne of my heart and He is my way and He is my truth and my life is all about Him. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Christianity, it's, it's on a collision course with the world system that says that, hey, all behaviors and all beliefs and all lifestyles are equal. Your way, your truth, your life. That is not what Christianity believes. Christianity believes that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. All behaviors are not equal. All beliefs are not equal. And all lifestyles are not equal. You're in the world a fallen, broken world, but you're not of the world if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But you're here with one kingdom objective. Glorify God by making disciples. The opening words of the book, The Purpose Driven Life, are these. It's not about me. We could have skipped everything else and just started with that, but we didn't. It's not about me. That's what it looks like to live in the world, but not be of the world. That's the first message. We're almost halfway home. How about that? There is a second message. I promise you we had to do a second message because we talked about counterculture Christianity, but we can't talk about counterculture Christianity without addressing count or countering culture Christianity. How do we counter culture Christianity? If you're like me, you may have grown up here in the South. I believe probably the majority of people in the room did. And so if you grew up like I did, um, your great-grandparents went to a Baptist church. They may have been a Baptist preacher. Um, your grandparents were a part of a Baptist church. Your parents were a part of a Baptist church. And guess what? Here you are in Parkway Baptist Church today. Um, it is a part of the culture that we grew up in is a Christian culture. The part of, in the South, it's called the Bible Belt for a reason. Because the, the, the religion that is prevalent here where we live is Christianity. And it's easy for anything that you're very, very familiar with to become very, very comfortable in. It's very, very easy for something that, that every generation before you, up to you now, and now that you're living, and maybe generations beyond you, that all they know is Christianity. And all they know is what they've seen in great-grandparents and grandparents and parents and now here. And it's very, very easy to get comfortable with what you're familiar with. And so we've got to counter culture Christianity. So how are we going to do that? We're going to do something that I believe that Jesus did frequently. Um, Jesus used uh, the art of discouragement. The art of discouragement. And I love it when he does this because, it's, you know, because he's not doing it to me right then, now. I mean, I wouldn't want to be standing there when he discouraged others. But he does it, and we can learn so much from it. Whenever Jesus used the art of discouragement, I believe this was the purpose. Discouragement, it drives discovery and it demands a decision. 
Discouragement drives discovery and it demands a decision. I'm going to walk you real quickly through these three things here that, hey, that you, that I am enough. Um, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is, is traveling through the city and he walks up to a tax collector's booth named Levi. And uh, tax collectors, we've talked about this in the past. You've heard Brother Jeff talk about this in the past. They were a different category of sinners. They were sinners, and then there were tax collectors. They were the worst of the worst. So Jesus walks up to the worst of the worst, and what does he say to him? He says, follow me. Follow me. Fast forward a little bit in the story, and there Jesus is at Matthew's house, at Levi's house, and he's invited. Who does he invite? His friends, who are probably sinners and tax collectors. And they're just having a grand old time having supper together. While they're eating there, a group of the religious leaders are gathering maybe outside the house. They weren't invited to the party, and they wouldn't have gone if they were invited. And so while they're outside questioning the disciples and going, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? Either Jesus heard it, or as Jesus most often did, he just knew their heart. And he says this. I'm not sure if they're close enough by they can hear it, or if he's yelling out the window But listen to what he says in in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse number 12. He addressed what those people, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors, sinners? Jesus says, I'll tell you. It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. To which Matthew goes, wait a second, Jesus, you're a guest in my house. Did you just call me sick? Did you just call my friends sinners? To which Jesus responded, yep. And Matthew went, you know, you're right. Absolutely. I'm a tax collector. Hey, guys, we're tax collectors and sinners. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, high five, Jesus. We're glad. Tax collectors, sinners. Jesus hanging out with us. Jesus says these things, and it, it drives discovery. Matthew had to decide, am I sick? Am I a sinner? Which we understand that Matthew said yes to both because he's there writing the story of Jesus. Another time, uh, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has just predicted his death. Right after Peter had just confessed that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're the one we've been looking for this whole time. And so Jesus immediately follows that up with uh, the Son of Man must suffer. He'll be betrayed, he'll be crucified, and in three days he'll rise again. And Peter speaks up in Matthew chapter 16, verses 22 and 23. Peter took him aside. He says, Jesus, come over here and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen. And Jesus turned and he told Peter, Peter, you just do you. That's not what he said. He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Peter, you're thinking about your way. Peter, you're thinking about your truth. You're thinking about your life. You're thinking about human concerns. Peter, I'm thinking about God's concerns where I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. So Peter, get behind me, Satan. To which Peter had to examine himself. It drives him to discover Am I speaking a heart out of a heart that's really concerned for what God wants to accomplish? 
Or is it human concerns that's driving that? And he had to come to a decision. Is Jesus right? Or am I right? We know that Peter decided Jesus is who he says he is. And after the resurrection, we see Peter preaching. And thousands coming to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Because he believed that he was in the world, but he was not of the world. And Jesus uses discouragement to drive us to discovery and bring us to a point of decision. One last one in John 16, he's talking to the disciples. And he says, I've told you these things that you might have peace. In this world, you can be anything you want. He didn't say that. He said, I've told you these things that you might have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. You will suffer. Which drives them to discovery. Is it worth it? Which brings them to decision. Will I continue to follow him? And we know 11 out of 12 did. Matter of fact, they were willing to give their life for him. They were willing to write their stories about who Jesus was. They were willing to go wherever they were sent. Because they truly believed that Jesus was the Son of God. So Jesus uses a discouragement. So where does that bring us into the story? I believe it brings us into the story. When we get comfortable with our faith, we, we sound a little bit like these Jewish leaders. Uh, after Jesus ascended to heaven, the Jewish leaders uh, began to add things to the gospel. Uh, there's a conversation in Acts chapter 15 where they said that, oh yes, uh, Jesus is Savior, but if you add circumcision to that, now we've got a perfect gospel. That's not going to work. You begin to get comfortable and you begin to add things. While Jesus was still on earth, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they were adding things to God's law. Their traditions became the same to them as God's law. And that's how they raised themselves above everyone else. Those Jewish leaders, while, while Jesus was on earth, said things like, I thank God that I'm not like other people. Like those cheaters and sinners and adulterers, I'm certainly not like this tax collector. That was a parable that Jesus taught. Jesus knows the hearts of the leaders of the day. And he says that was their heart. Also, another time they were having a conversation about what needed to happen to, to have this new life. And, and Jesus asked, well, what do you think? One of the teachers of the law says, well, I think you need to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and all of your strength. And you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, oh, you're close. You're not far away. But then he takes about 15 steps back and goes, well, who is my neighbor? He was so close. But then he says, well, how much is enough? How much is enough, really? I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a teacher of the law. I follow the law to perfection. I'm righteous. I have a right standing with God. So how much is enough, Jesus? How much do I have to love? How much do I have to give? How much do I have to serve? How much do I have to sacrifice and read my Bible and go to church and to pray? Oh, wait a second, those are our questions. When we begin to ask ourselves how much is enough, we're asking the wrong questions. We're asking how much do I got to do to stay connected with you, Jesus, instead of 
a different question. Ernie Johnson is a, a broadcaster, a sports broadcaster for TNT. He's quoted as saying, I, I have a get-to job, not a got-to job. I get to do my job every single day. Folks, we have a get-to faith, not a got-to faith. We get to serve our Heavenly Father every single day. And when He calls us to serve, we get to serve by the power that He gives us. I get to give, and I get to serve, and I get to love, and I get to sacrifice. I get to do all these things. I get to read my Bible. I get to pray, and He hears my prayers. I get to serve my Heavenly Father. The teachers of the law, it's like, how much is enough? Teachers of the law, well, compared to everyone else, I'm okay. And so Jesus knows their heart, and one last passage of Scripture, he uses discouragement to get to the heart of things. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaks to these teachers. The whole chapter is dedicated to speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. There's just one that I want to point out today. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 27, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and to his disciples. But I guarantee you, in the crowd are the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Such encouragement. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, when he begins to compare things to whitewash tombs. We don't, we don't get that. We don't understand that. Let me kind of give you a little context there. There was a rainy season in Israel that, I mean, just the waters would erode all of the roads and would wash debris over tombs. Remember, tombs in, in this society, they weren't like dug in the ground because you wouldn't dig in the sand to try and bury a body. You would carve out a, a hole in a, in a wall in the mountainside and in the hole or in the cave, you would place the body and you would put a stone over it. And so during the rainy season, any markings on these tombs would be just washed away. And so after the rainy season, they would go back and they would whitewash the tombs. One reason, similar to what we do today, I mean, we would go and place flowers on a tomb to, to mark those tombs, to, to bring love, our love to that and to say, oh, these are our loved ones. And maybe that's one reason they would come and whitewash the stone that covered the tomb so that they could see and bring remembrance to their people. But there was another reason. Not only would they whitewash the tomb, they would use this lime and they would spread it out around this tomb because, again, the roadways and the graves, you couldn't tell. It's just a big rock on the side of the road. Who knows that's a tomb? So they put this white lime on the ground to say, hey, if you're a part of the Jewish faith, don't go here. Stay away from this because if you got too close to a dead body, if you got too close to a tomb, you were considered uh, unclean. If you're unclean, you couldn't go to temple. If you're unclean, you couldn't participate in really with your family until you went through these rituals, these ceremonial washings, the different sacrifices that had to be made for getting too close to a dead body or getting too close to a tomb. And so they put this lime around and say, hey, watch out, keep away, keep out, don't go here. And Jesus looks to this this group of people who are supposed to have it all together. They're supposed to be leading people into a right relationship with God. 
And he says to them, you're like a whitewashed tomb. And you know what that means? You ought to just wear the sign. Keep out. Keep away from these religious leaders. Because they appear righteous on the outside. But on the inside, they're full of lawlessness. On the outside, they're whitewashed. On the inside, they're full of a dead man's bones. And guys, if we're not careful, if all we're doing is living a culture Christianity, it's so easy to compare yourself to other Christians and go, I'm doing better than them. I read more than them. I give more than them. It's so easy to get to a place where you ask the question, how much is enough? It's so easy to get to a place where Jesus speeds a little discouragement in your life. He says, you look righteous on the outside. What's going on on the inside? You're in the world, but are you not of the world? I'm your king. You're in my kingdom. Are you living here? Pastor named Leonard Ravenhill says this. He says that God does not want partnership with us, but ownership of us. Some of us today, we just say, God, own us. God, we, we've been living this culture of Christianity for long enough. And God, I need you to own me. I need you to help me own up for how I've been living God, I realize there's one kingdom objective, and it's to bring you glory and to make disciples. One kingdom objective. One kingdom objective. Bring you glory by making disciples. But I've been distracted because I've been in the world. But I realize I'm not of the world. God, own me. I believe Jesus would speak into maybe a little bit of discouragement for all of us today. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 36, Jesus says this. It's right after he told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And calling to the crowd along with his disciples, he said this. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For, what, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? And if you hear those words and it sounds like a discouragement, like, oh man, I have exchanged everything for this world. So that I can make it in this world. Jesus is saying, lose it. Give this life away. Surrender it. It's not too much. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. You're in the world, but you're not of it. You're my son. You're my daughter. Come back to me. God, own me. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we just, we come before you 
And God, it's easy to hear the message about counterculture Christianity because many people in the room today believe that, that we're in the world but not of the world. Many people in this room have lived lives like that, that they know that they are not in the world but of the world, but not of the world. And so, Father, it's easy to have that agreement. But, Father, when we talk about culture Christianity and how to counter that, it begins to speak to the hearts of believers everywhere. God, it makes us check our faith and our trust and our beliefs and and where are they placed. Father, if we surrendered our life to you, then we know we have a right standing with you only because of what Jesus has done in our life. And if you have saved us, then you get to make the call of how we live this life here. A place we're in, but not of. And so, Father, I pray right now that you would do your work in your life, in our lives. God, I pray right now that that you would hear the prayers, God, own us. We are nothing without you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.